The following podcast is a proud member of the Blue Collar Roots Network. Find all the shows by visiting bluecollarroots.com. It's like your favorite call-in radio show, without being able to call in, and without being on the radio. Building HVAC Science with Bill Spohn. Welcome back to another episode of the Building HVAC Science Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Spohn, and I've worked in the building science and HVAC markets for almost 30 years. I've noticed the need for scientifically rooted information on how to do a technically correct job, and that information is either not being taught or easily accessible to those in the field. So these are some of the reasons why I started the Building HVAC Science Podcast. Well, today we go from science to medicine. Welcome to the show, Dr. Stephanie Taylor. She's on the ASHRAE and Pandemic Task Force. She shares her fascinating story of a career path from medicine to architecture to crusading for better building health by bridging these professional silos. I had a great time interviewing Stephanie, plumbing the depth of her knowledge and experience. We discuss many aspects of IQ and focus in on the impact of humidity on human health. Key takeaway of our discussion is the invisible impact of a building on one's health. You can learn more about our work at www.42-60rh.com or follow her on LinkedIn with a link in the show notes. So let's listen in our conversation with Dr. Stephanie Taylor. Good afternoon at this point. How are you doing? Good, thanks. I'm really happy to be here. I'm flattered that we connected, that we met so serendipitously. And it's the first time I've had a medical doctor on the program. And I want to give you a chance to explain a little bit about your background and credentials. And not that that's the most important thing we talk about, but it lends towards the discussion. So if you could give us a little background on yourself, please. So um, yes, I'm first and foremost in my professional life. I'm a physician, a pediatric oncologist to be specific. And when I went to medical school back in the uh, 1980s, I went to Harvard, which I was thrilled to. It's an amazing school. I was absolutely ecstatic to be there. And I really delved into science, into how cancer cells grow without restraint. Then I went through, did my clinical work in pediatrics. I became a pediatric oncologist. And meanwhile, Bill, I began to wonder why so many patients came into the hospital for treatment and got these infections, and it seemed like some of them were related to the physical environment, to the building. Strange organisms that would be sequestered to one part of a building or another, things like that. So as I continued to practice medicine, meanwhile, I'm very interested in evolution and how biology sort of, what the choices biology gives us in our response to forces, whether it's temperature, electricity, humidity, Do we live in the water? Do we live on land? Do we move through the air? How do all these things impact us as organisms? So drill that down to patients in a building, I realized that I didn't know enough about buildings. So I went back to school, got my master's in architecture and engineering, and designed hospitals for about seven, eight years before I came back to this intersection of the indoor environment and human health. That's kind of my background and how I came to be passionate about the value of buildings and the indoor environment in protecting our health. So Stephanie, you've walked the walk in uh, several different areas of, of the world and your life. And that does, again, give you 
a lot of credence in, in the discussion we're going to have. And we talked about this beforehand and thought the topic of buildings and health sort of merged together. And we're beginning to see a lot more of this, or at least I am from my perspective, talking about indoor air quality, but it's more than that, talking about energy efficiency, comfort, and things like that. But you have this aspect that you're looking at from buildings and health. I'd say it's a new area for me to explore and for my listeners to hear about. So can you tell us what are some of the things that are top of mind for you right now in, in terms of buildings and health? One of the things that's at the top of my mind is how do we bridge the professional silos of medicine and building professionals, engineers, architects, facility managers, because that is a huge challenge. And I think it goes deeper than buildings and medicine. It goes to all of us as human beings. But back to my my journey to this podcast, when I went back to architecture school, learned about buildings, learned about the design process, I realized it was a very different way of thinking from what we're taught in medical school. Medical school, it's very linear. We're We know where we're going before we go there. In the built environment, that's not always the case. We have to see where we are and what the connections are. So when I was asking how the hospital building might contribute to infections in the patients, I was using all sorts of surrogate metrics to understand what the infection rate was and where the bacteria and viruses resided in the building. And then I had an aha moment one day when I said, wait a second, why don't we just use the patient in the bed as our Petri dish or as our most important metric? We talk about specificity. We talk about sensitivity in medicine. You want your solutions to be specific to the problem and you want them to be sensitive to the outcomes. So I realized the patient is really the most specific, the most sensitive to the question of, do we have a clean environment? So using that perspective of patient outcomes as an eye to building management. Number one, I began to see some powerful trends that I'll tell you about in a second. But secondly, I realized that you can take that approach to any type of building. You can use human health or human productivity as a lens to proper building management. For example, you can look at office worker productivity or absenteeism, and you can begin to correlate the human factor with the indoor environment. It seems so intuitive and so obvious, and yet it's not one that is often taken. We're more prone to watch our checkbook or to watch the energy meter because we have to pay for that. And then to design against sustainability, which is clearly important, but it's not the only thing that's important. Yeah, the surrogate metrics, I wanted to kind of return to that. So the patient, in your mind, became the surrogate metric? Or are they actually the metric? That's exactly right. They're the metric. They're the canary in the coal mine. What were some of the surrogate metrics that you did look at, just so that people understand that connection, maybe walk that path in part of your history, Stephanie? Initially, when I was working with infection preventionists in the hospital, trying to see if we were cleaning the room properly, we looked at microbial swabs of the patient bed rail, or we'd look at swabs of the monitors or high-touch regions. We would put Petri dishes in the room and let dust settle into the Petri dishes and then try to grow out any bacteria or fungal organisms that might be carried in that dust. Those were the surrogate measures. We're looking for organisms in the patient room. 
And then uh, just I'm going to explore it a little bit further. Do you think you need more patient, like quantity of patients in order to be a good metric versus sort of the more scientific studies of, I'm going to call them the aggressors in the environment? You're right. When you're talking about a human being and a building, there's so many potentially confounding factors that physicists would run the other way. A chemist would probably not be happy. Biologists would be a little more happy, but there are many variables in this type of research. The beauty is, and thankfully, right around the time when I started doing this, there were a couple of shifts that made this approach more feasible. One of those shifts was we started using electronic medical records for patients. So all of a sudden, instead of having piles of paper charts, we had computerized records. So you could delve into those computerized records and select the factors that you were, you're looking at. That was one thing. Another thing is right around 2003, when we finally sequenced the human genome, we were able to use new genetic analysis techniques to look at the organisms in a room, on surfaces, in the air, and in our body. So all of a sudden, we not only had electronic medical records, but we kind of had an electronic database of organisms. And then thirdly, we have computers with fantastically powerful statistical analysis capabilities. If we didn't have all three of those components, this research would be almost impossible to do. So it's a confluence of the e-records, e-med records, data science, if you will, and the sequencing of the genome. I just wanted to capture the those are the three. Yeah. All three of those things happened or became more widely available right around the same time. Getting back to your perspective, and I know you have some ideas which you champion and you want to communicate and to connect the silos. Do you want to talk about a couple of those? Sure. So the first big study that I was involved in took place over about 13 months. It was in the Chicago area where we were looking at a hospital, brand new hospital, lead silver, beautiful building. We were measuring the environmental parameters of that hospital. We monitored the microbes within the building, within the patient rooms and nursing stations. So that was the first bucket of data. And concurrently, over 13 months, we analyzed patient outcomes, patient records in that building. We took about, I think it was 8 million data points and correlated any potential relationships. And out of this huge mix came the connection that when the relative humidity in the patient room dropped below 40, 35% infection rate went up. So I was completely startled. If anything, this was the opposite of what I might've expected. I always thought if you have more humidity, it's like water in your garden and you're gonna have more things grow. It turns out that low relative humidity in the hospital is associated with a higher infection rate in the patients and a higher illness rate in the nursing and clinical staff as well. Again, this was completely not what I had expected, so of course I didn't believe it at first. We repeated the study in a nursing home over six years. The study's been repeated now in offices, in preschools, in many different building types. And again and again, we're learning that when the relative humidity falls below 40% indoors, that infections and inflammatory diseases, even surprising associations like a person's sleep at night is worth when the environment in the daytime is dry. And we now know the reasons for that. But as I expanded my research and other people 
embarked on the same types of projects, we again and again are finding this very consistent finding that there's a sweet spot of indoor relative humidity, 40 to 60%, that protects human health. It's absolutely remarkable. Now, why was the infection rate going up? Are you on the trail to understanding, like, is it something biological that's happening or something mechanical happening in mucous membranes or something? Both. (laughs) Again, I'm, I'm marveling at the quality of your questions, Bill. Why is this? There are actually three components to infectious disease transmission as it relates to relative humidity. So what we, and actually many people, and in fact, when I really went back and did a literature search, I I realized that these correlations have been known for quite some time. We just saw them in a different magnitude. But we now know that when the relative humidity indoors is low, there are really three problems. The first problem is you have more particles in your breathing zone. Particles are dry, they're stirred up, they escape gravitational forces. So if that particle happens to be carrying a virus or a bacteria, it's in your breathing zone. It can travel through the air, through mechanical systems, and become available, so to speak, to other people in the building. But before we had these genetic analysis tools, when we tried to grow those particles or grow a bacteria from the particle, it didn't work. So everybody figured that those little particles were just sort of dead. Maybe they were a problem if you were a circuit board, but probably not a problem if you were a human being. We've since learned that's not the case, that those viruses or microbes that are in a desiccated state, they might be dormant. They might be sort of like asleep after the football game, but they're not dead. And once they're rehydrated in a secondary person's airways or wound or eye or wherever they happen to land that's that's hydrated, they can reinfect that person. The first problem with dry air is there are more infectious particles in your breathing zone. Second problem is that with many viruses and bacteria, not all of them, but many, including the SARS-CoV-2, when the relative humidity is less than 40%, for reasons we don't fully understand, the infectivity of each particle is worse. So for example, say you're dealing with influenza virus, when that virus is in a dry environment, its actual activity is increased. And again, if you can figure that out, let's get the Nobel Prize. We don't know why that is. We have theories, but we don't know why. And thirdly, and this is really surprising to me anyway, we now know that the human immune system particularly the respiratory immune system, is impaired when the relative humidity falls below 40%. So what does that mean? It means that the mucus in your airways gets dry and more viscous, and it isn't as sticky, so it doesn't trap things. The little cilia, the little hairs that are in your respiratory tract that kind of wash upwards and keep things away from your lungs, the cilia can't function when that mucus is thickened. So those things are kind of intuitive if you're thinking about mucus in your airways. But even beyond that, we're finding that certain proteins that the human body produces that are protective, proteins like interferon, things you might have read about from the pharmaceutical industry, Mm -hmm. a lot of those are produced naturally by a functioning immune system. But we know now, this is Dr. Iwasaki's work at Yale, that even interferon levels fall dangerously low when you're in dry ambient conditions. So not only is is the mucus not sticky and the cilia aren't working, 
but the very cells of your respiratory tract cannot protect you from inhaled viruses or bacteria. It's remarkable. It is, and it's a confluence of bad events in this case that's of consequences from low humidity. Some of my audience are building performance, some are HVAC, some are average consumers. Can you talk towards, there's all kinds of ways of humidifying. We can all probably think of it over time, different means are used without like getting specific about a product, but maybe just a technique. The one thing, for example, that's on my mind is things like neti pots. Do you have any advice on that? That's sort of like your own little private humidity bubble. I've never used a neti pot. Somehow the idea of flushing something up my nose just isn't appealing. I'm a scuba diver, so I think things have gone up my nose more often than I want. (laughs) But a lot of people use them for sinus infections and things like that. Again, I don't have a medical opinion. Mm -hmm. Problem with the neti pot, you're only moisturizing your, your nasal passages when you're rinsing them or maybe for a little while afterwards. But the impact of dry air is really widespread. I mean, I've talked about the respiratory system. It Mm -hmm. actually has an impact on your skin that makes you more vulnerable to allergic reactions. And even beyond that, that's probably a little bit more medical than I should get into. But human beings were not made to live in dry ambient conditions. And from like an HVAC or building performance perspective, we know that Things come infiltration of outside, cold outside air, which is very low absolute humidity content. Mixing with the indoor air can drive humidity levels down, even if you're trying to keep up with that. So that's why in building science, we recommend seal it tight, ventilate it right, and make sure you keep a balance in there. I want to take a moment and mention one of the sponsors of the Building HVAC Science podcast. It's Build Equinox. Build Equinox is the manufacturer of the Serve 2. That's the conditioning ERV. Of course, an ERV is an energy recovery ventilator. I like to call it a smart ventilator as it decides when to run based on integrated sensors. This very unique product contains a one-third horsepower variable speed heat pump to positively transfer more of the sensible and latent energy between this ERV's ventilation and exhaust streams. I'm so impressed with this product. I'll be using it in my own personalized performance home scheduled for occupancy by summer of 2020. So surf on over to www.buildequinox.com to learn more about the Serve 2, which by the way is American designed and made in a solar powered factory in Urbana, Illinois. Also look for an episode of the Building HVAC Science Podcast where I interview the inventor, Ty Newell. And when you get in touch, tell them the Building HVAC Science Podcast sent you. Thanks. What kind of advice do you have to the HVAC professionals that might be listening to this? Where would you like to impart to them? I would say a couple of things. One is really learn about, people worry about mold. And they feel like, well, if we humidify our building, we're going to have mold. The fact is mold cannot use water vapor or humidity to grow. Mold needs liquid water. So if you're in a cold climate and you have warm humidified air in your building, and your insulation is impaired or not adequate, and you have a thermal channel, yes, you will reach dew point in your wall, and you can have liquid condensation. But the solution is not to create an indoor Sahara desert that's harmful to people. The solution is build your building right. Put the proper U values in your insulation. Use proper windows. With existing buildings, clearly that can be expensive. So, for example, I live in northern Vermont. 
gets very cold in the winter. I live in an old farmhouse with lots of leaks and thin glass. And But about four years ago, my husband and I started humidifying our home. And sometimes in the winter, we can only get it up to maybe 34%. But ever since we installed humidifiers, neither of us have gotten sick. He used to have all sorts of respiratory issues in the winter. Neither of us have had a cold. I can pet my seven dogs and I don't shock them every time. The car stays in tune. They appreciate that. It's just remarkable how much more comfortable our home is. Yeah, there is a balancing act in human comfort. And we talked before we started recording about Robert Bean and his statement that's stuck with me ever since I heard it was designed for people, good buildings follow. That's from a uh, comfort standpoint, but this is moving into the health aspect. That same terminology echoes what you're saying. That's a great line. I'm going to have to steal that. With attribution, of course. Yeah. It's, in your case, it was really designed for patients and good buildings follow. That's where you're, the genesis of your research and your path has come from. Exactly. And so now I believe, and when I present to ASHRAE, one of my titles is engineers or design professionals are the physicians of the future. Because I really believe that medicine, traditional medicine, traditional meaning Western medicine, we've kind of made a mess of things. Healthcare costs are too high. We've got antibiotic resistance. We've got issues from becoming super specialized. And I really believe that it's up to building uh, engineers, facility managers, contractors to protect public health because we're indoors 90% of our time. So it's not too surprising that that environment is going to have a powerful effect on our health. And I just wanted to say, Bill, you asked about ways to humidify. Yes. And I'm not a humidifier expert. I have read and learned in the last several years that there's sort of three categories of humidification. There's evaporative, there's aerosolized droplets that then also evaporate, and there's uh, steam humidification, different direct steam, indirect steam. I can't give proper advice on that. I do know that evaporative humidification, which is what the human body uses for cooling, actually, is the lowest energy form of humidification. So I actually use that in my home, even in the winter. I do substitute that with steam humidification on really cold days, just because evaporative humidification cools the air a little bit. And the aerosolized, that I think that's got to do with ultrasonics. It shakes the water molecules off of a surface. Is that correct? Yes. Without imparting, it's a vibrational energy, not thermal energy, perhaps. That's exactly right. And some systems use deionized water. Some need the ions in the water to create a circuit. And But again, I'm the wrong person to tell you about that. Okay. If you can point me in a direction after the call, maybe we'll get somebody on who can to carry on this topic because it does revolve back to my primary audience there. What are you hopeful about sitting in your perspective here in 2020 about this, the research that you're doing? It sounds like it's been quite a journey from recognition of this, perhaps in the late 80s, early 90s. What's the future look like? How have things come along? Actually, I didn't go back to architecture school until I was in my 40s. So that was an adventure, being in the same class with 20-year-olds. But anyway, my awareness of how powerful the building is has actually really increased in the last 15 years. But what I hope for, the things that I think are really necessary, and this is what I'm working towards now, I think it's really necessary to make visible, invisible components of a building that impact our health. The energy meter is visible, so we attend to it. The real estate value of a building is visible because we get a check or don't get a check. 
I'm working on myself and other people are working on revealing the components in a building that impact our health so that we can monitor them and adjust them. For example, particles, humidity, VOCs, temperature, filtration rates, outdoor ventilation, airflow, pressurization, lighting. Those are all things that impact our health, and yet they're more or less invisible. Mm -hmm. We don't know how impactful they are at any given moment. We perhaps react to them, but we cannot detect them without a, a device or some kind of measurement tool, which caters towards my interest in understanding and distributing and helping people properly use measurement tools. And I've been having a lot of fascinating conversations, especially with regard to ventilation rates now and air quality, the necessity to change ventilation rates due to COVID-19. Do you have any perspectives on that you'd like to share or any kind of tie-ins between what you know, everybody's hearing about ventilation now. Vanity Fair is talking ventilation. New York Times is talking USA Today talking ventilation. What do you have to impart on that subject now? I think from the perspective of our exposure to a virus, ventilation is clearly a an effective and understandable solution. You get rid of the bad and you bring in fresh, good air. I think that's important and it is effective. There are a couple of problems with that. One, if your outdoor air is polluted, then you know you're not really creating any solutions. Secondly, as we move towards wintertime, if you try for huge amounts of outdoor air ventilation in your building, and then you heat your building to tolerable warmth levels, first of all, you're going to use a lot of energy that's going to be expensive, create secondary problems from that for the environment. And thirdly, your humidity levels are going to plummet. And that in the past has not bothered anyone. But now that we know how important it is to keep your relative humidity, hopefully 40 to 60%, you cannot use 100% outdoor air ventilation in the wintertime and survive. I can't give you any exact ventilation rates. Carbon dioxide is often used as a measurement for right. proper ventilation. But whatever you do, don't just, without any second thought, sacrifice indoor humidity levels. We really need to maintain our indoor humidity is close to 40 to 60% as we can. And that doesn't mean that other strategies aren't beneficial on top of that. Filtration is very effective if you're going to recirculate your air. ASHRAE says MERV 13 filters are recommended. When you have humidified air and more, and the particles are larger, your filtration is more effective. Room air change rates create a more sanitized environment when you have proper humidification, because you're not just stirring up through turbulent airflows, infectious particles. Filtration is important. Outdoor air ventilation is important. UVC is very effective, especially in ductwork. I think we have to be a little bit careful because we're beginning to see resistance to UVC in the viruses and bacteria. So I don't think we can use it without looking to the future, but it is very effective and has a place in sanitizing our buildings. Throughout the conversation, you discussed the resources or references to studies and things like that. Do you have any resources that you can lend to our listeners to go and study further if they wish? Yes. If you go on the ASHRAE Epidemic Task Force website, there's a tab on, called Scientific Data where we have all of our background papers, and there are hundreds of them. More specifically, the work from Yale on the impact of the indoor ambient conditions on on our immune system is Akiko Iwasaki, and that was published May 5th, 2019, in the preceding PNAS is the journal. 
anyway, I could send you a list, Bill. Sure. And there's the website that we had talked about before, the 40 to 60 RH. Is that correct? Yes. So back in the beginning of this pandemic, myself and Dr. Iwasaki and Dr. Hugentobler in Switzerland petitioned the World Health Organization to promote 40 to 60% relative humidity. So on our petition website in the world, it's called 40 to 60RH.com. We have a number of really good references. That's a good, easy one to remember too. Yeah. What advice would you give to a consumer? And we'll we'll go through like the consumer and then the buildings and facilities, HVAC person and kind of sequence. What advice would you give to a consumer about this topic area? What advice I would give to anyone or what I do myself, number one, humidify my spaces, my home, my office. I have a little hygrometers all over the place that measure the relative humidity so you know what you're doing because our bodies cannot detect dry air quickly enough. So I would say monitor your buildings, monitor your humidity. And if you're in a cold climate in the winter and you use heat, you're going to have to humidify. So whatever you do, get some water vapor in your air. Hang wet sheets up if you have to. Boil water on your stove. Go get a humidifier. Put in a full building system. And learn about humidification and get beyond the myths that if you humidify, you're going to have Legionella. That's just not true. Two, one's a fear, one's a solution. Learn about the need for water vapor for humans. So I would say make things visible by monitoring your building, in this case, hygrometers. Understand what the healthy range is and work towards achieving it. For the practitioner, the HVAC contractor who will be dealing with customers who may come at them with questions of this regard or may want to proactively offer solutions in this way, what advice do you have for contractors? Again, I would learn as much as possible about the role of water vapor in health. Learn about different ways of monitoring the indoor environment with a perspective of health. So understand about particle counts, VOCs, carbon dioxide, humidity, temperature. Learn how those things affect health. And when somebody says, well, humidifiers are nasty and they get slimy and I don't want to clean them. I don't want to buy them. I don't want to run them. Say, look, there are safe units out there. There are new units. And just educate yourself about the role of the building and the role of the indoor environment on human health and educate yourself about ways to bring in water vapor safely. And then going back to the point you did mention, which is great. I'm glad you covered it because sometimes that's the pushback when you get towards higher ranges of humidity and you do have these leakage paths and you can get condensation or dew point surfaces in the wall. You nailed it perfectly from a building science standpoint. It's about liquid water and mold. It isn't about vaporized water. But if you drive vaporized water onto a dew point surface in a wall cavity, then you've got a hidden water trap, a little waterfall, a puddle for things to grow in. That's a huge problem. But the solution is not to try to ban water from the indoor environment. It's to understand the building physics and fix the best you can fix that issue in the building physics. Exactly. And if you look at some buildings like the NIH research labs, where there's a clear price tag on an animal's head, they're in 40 to 60%. If you're a famous painting or a piano, the Mona Lisa's in 40 to 60%. If you're an astronaut in the space station, you've got 40 to 60%. And there's no, no humidity in outer space. So NASA has figured out how to humidify. We can do it. We just have to work at it. Yeah, I'm just noting here our most valuable assets are at 40 to 60. And that includes, you said paintings, astronauts. What was the other one? 
Research animals. Research animals, yeah. I was hiking in Peru with my son, who's an emergency room doc. It was about a year and a half ago. We were way up in the Andes, and we came upon this little stone building that had a thermometer and a hygrometer in it, along with the corpses of important people who had died. And there was a humidifier and a dehumidifier. And eventually the manager came along, the guy who was managing this building, this mausoleum. And I said, what are your goals here for these corpses? And he said, well, the corpses do better when the relative humidity is between 40 and 60%. (laughs) That's our goal. And I thought, wait a minute, if you can do it in a mausoleum up in the Andes, can't we do it in our inhabited buildings? So That's very funny. (laughs) Odd funny, not haha funny. Well, I really enjoyed having you on. And I think at some point we'll probably circle around and perhaps have you back again on the podcast. Any parting thoughts you want to leave? I'll I'll put some of those resources and when you forward them to me, I'll put them in the show notes so people can get access to them. But any parting thoughts on the topics of building and health and, and really sort of narrowing the focus into maintaining a good range of relative humidity? Any kind of parting thoughts? I think my overriding parting thought is that as we struggle with this pandemic and all of the economic and health consequences, I think this realize that the silver lining is that we have really recognized the value of buildings in protecting human beings. And so for everyone who deals with buildings, whether you're an architect, engineer, builder, whatever, whatever your relationship is, learn about the relationship and understand how important your work is. I'll always keep learning, never stop learning, education and Keep your brain sensors open to new things you may receive. Exactly. Great. Thank you for coming on, Stephanie. It's been a a real pleasure. My sister is a nurse practitioner, and I'm definitely going to share this episode of the show with her. I think she would really enjoy listening to this, as as well as other people. Hopefully, we'll share it pretty broadly. Great. And thank you so much. It's been a real honor. I'm going to say it's mutual, but it's probably a great honor for me. I'm just (laughs) going to take that one from you. Thank you for coming on. Take care and have a good day. Thank you for listening to today's episode with Dr. Taylor. Here's a quote for today. He who has health has hope, and he who has hope has everything. That's by Thomas Carlyle. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor of the Building HVAC Science Podcast or have a suggestion for a guest or topic, please email me at bill at bluecollarroots.com. The Building HVAC Science Podcast is a production of True Tech Tools Limited, and in full disclosure, I'm an owner of True Tech Tools. We hope you got some good information from today's podcast and look forward to having you back again at the Building HVAC Science Podcast. Take care.